Oh, Father, you have promised in your word that the going forth of your word does not return void, that it will always accomplish the purpose for which it was sent out. Oh, Father, would you help us to receive your word with joy, to preach your word with joy, to hear your word with confidence that you will accomplish what you intend to do with, do with it by the accompany, accompaniment of your spirit. Would you help us not to be hearers only, but doers as well. Guard us from error and lead us by your spirit into all that is truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I did not plan this. I did not ask Mark to pick Amazing Grace, but it happens to feed right into my introduction. I think there is probably no... It's arguably one of my, if not the favorite hymn that I have, is Amazing Grace. Slightly different than that variation, but a, a wonderful song nonetheless. And what I love about it is not merely its content, though that is incredible, but it's really the backstory behind the author who wrote it. Now, uh, some biographer, or a number of biographers have mentioned uh, that John Newton, the author, before he became a Christian, entered into the African slave trade as early as age 11, plumbing, as the biographers say, the depths of human degradation. John Newton reveled in what he perceived as his freedom and the profit that he gained off the backs of slaves. Until one night at about age 23, when he's out at sea and a great storm comes in, And all John Newton thinks is his death is imminent. He's suddenly confronted with the realization that he is soon to die and meet his maker. And he cries out to God for mercy. The slave trader. Slave trafficker pleading with his maker for mercy. And by the grace of God, God answers. Not only does he deliver John Newton from that storm. But he does something far greater, infinitely of more worth. He opens his eyes to see that after all of these years, it was really him who had been the slave. It was John Newton who needed freedom. He caused him to come to an end in himself with the depths of his sin before him. And John Newton suddenly knew only amazing grace could save a wretch like him, a slave like him, which is exactly what God did. Newton was convicted of his sin. He repented of his sin and by faith trusted in the finished work of Christ and discovered the true freedom that he'd always pretended he had. This idea of freedom that comes only by faith in Jesus Christ is really a theme that's been woven throughout our last few weeks in Galatians. Freedom from slavery. That's what Paul's been getting at. It's been the heartbeat of Galatians. And if you were here this last week, Paul actually reminded these churches in Galatia of their life before they were Christians. How they were slaves to their false religion to their self-righteousness, their hope that by their merit in these false religions, they might appease their gods, only to find out 
they could never be made righteous by their own works or by their false religion. Righteous as God required of them. So when Paul comes and preaches the gospel to them and tells them of God's free and loving gift of being justified or declared righteous, not by their works or by their merit, but by faith, they believe. They're overjoyed at the love of God's gift. And they were freed, just like John Newton. The problem is, shortly after Paul left them, it appears that these Jewish Christians, those who claimed to have converted to Christianity but still held on to their Jewish past, had come into these churches and said, no, 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 your faith is not sufficient for your justification. If you want to really become a Christian, you must first also become a Jew by observing the entirety of the law, most importantly, circumcision, part of the ceremonial law. But Paul knows that this makes righteousness, your being declared righteous before God, based not just on faith, but also on works, which completely undermines grace and therefore completely undermines the gospel. And more than that, Paul says it would actually throw them right back into the slavery that they once professed freedom from. And so he began a plea with them last week a plea that they would not return to their former slavery, but that they would continue in the freedom they once claimed to have. And it's that plea that we come to as a close this morning. So if you would, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. It can be found on page 1814 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Galatians chapter 4 will be in verses 21 to 31. But before we dive in, You'll notice something slightly strange about your bulletin this morning. If you look to the back, it is just blank space. My confession is this passage has given me quite a heartache this week and has been a very tough one for me to fully understand, which means poor Dory did not have an outline from me by the time it was required to print because I didn't have an outline yet. So let me first apologize to you note takers out there. There is, there is no outline for you on the bulletin, but I'll give a quick overview of how Paul Uh, unpacks these verses in 21 to 31. So we have in verses 21 to 23, Paul basically gives a proof text, uh, uh, the text he's going to use to demonstrate just how impossible it is for the, the Galatians, or anyone for that matter, to become righteous by the law, which he then interprets that proof text in verses 24 to 27 and what he calls an allegorical interpretation, which we'll unpack in a moment. And then with that interpretation in hand, and essentially the opposition to him defeated, Paul turns in 20 to 31 with four applications for those who are believing in faith. Four applications. So, and that's where I want to spend the, mo- the bulk of our time, because contained there are not just the implications or applications for these Galatian Christians, but they're applications for all Christians, including us today. So essentially we have explanation, 21 to 23, interpretation, 24 to 27, and application, 28 to 31. Three very simple points, and we'll have four applications under point number three. So with that, let's begin with Paul's explanation. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. Paul writes, 
Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. Pause there. Can you feel the punch of Paul's opening question? You who claim that you can become righteous by the law, by living under the law, that that is going to be your source of righteousness. Surely you must not know what the law says. Your very hope you must be ignorant to, or else you would never look to the law for your righteousness. You'd know that's never what God gave it for. It was not to make you righteous or declare you righteous. And then you have to love how Paul handles this controversy over doctrine. He opens with that question, but then he turns not to worldly wisdom, but he looks back to the scriptures. What is written, for it is written. Paul looks back to what God has revealed, a consistent theme of Paul and good brief lesson for us as well. When controversy develops over doctrine, We should look back to what God has revealed in his word, how he has instructed us according to that doctrine. But if you're like me, you get to what Paul references in the scriptures and in the scriptures and you think, why is he looking here? Why this scripture? What is what is Paul getting at with this example of these two sons through these two mothers? So let's step back into the book of Genesis where Paul's referencing so we can get a better understanding of Paul's main point. So in Genesis 12, as we've talked about for a number of weeks, Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. A promise that through Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. And not just through Abraham, but specifically through Abraham's offspring. But years pass after God has given that promise, and Abraham's wife still is without a child. So Abraham and his wife Sarah start wondering, well, maybe God isn't going to fulfill his promise through me. Surely he can't fulfill it through... She's nearing 80 years old at this point. And they're thinking, my body can't do this. And so they're starting to question and doubt God's ability to bring about his promise through Sarah. So what do they do? They take matters into their own hands. And Sarah tells Abraham, take Hagar... Our bondservant, or as Paul calls her, their slave, and start and, and work on having this promised offspring through her. And Abraham foolishly agrees. So he takes Hagar, and at first it seems to work. Hagar does conceive, and she has a son, and they name him Ishmael. So that's kind of mother and son number one. But the problem is that wasn't God's promise. God's promise was that in spite of her age, it would be through Sarah that the offspring would come. A promise that at first caused both Abraham and Sarah to laugh because it seemed to them impossible. But then they both believed God's promise with faith. And then we see in Genesis 21, when Sarah is 91 years old, a miracle happens. The Lord visited Sarah as he said he would. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. And they named him Isaac. Okay, so that's the explanation. Paul introduces Abraham's two sons, 
born to two mothers, Isaac, born by faith in the promise, and Ishmael, born according to the flesh and self-reliance. But how does this expose the absurdity or impossibility of gaining righteousness by the law, as Paul opened within that opening question? Because remember, that's his point. He's trying to show that, it is, that they must not understand the law if they're trying to gain righteousness through it. So to understand what Paul's getting at, let's look at his, his interpretation, verses 24 to 27. Paul's interpretation. These things may be taken figuratively. For the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman, who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. So first we see Paul introduced Hagar and Sarah because he wants to present an illustration, a a figurative interpretation, or what your translation might read as an allegory, an allegorical interpretation, which is to say Paul sees this historical, true-to-life event, what really happened, as having a meaning beyond what just happened in itself a meaning much bigger that God is using to illustrate something of greater significance than just them. Now, that does not mean that we have permission to just run through the Bible and interpret everything allegorically however we see fit. A good rule of thumb is that we should essentially feel ourselves only permitted to do that when the Bible tells us we can do that, like here, when Paul says we can interpret it allegorically. So then if they are an, an illustration or representation. What is it they represent? Well, in short, Paul says they represent two religions. Two religions. One reliant on self, and the other reliant on faith. Hagar represents self reliance, or in other words, legalism. The, if you think back to the circumstances of Ishmael's birth, what happened? God made a promise to Abraham. But Abraham, rather than trust the promise in faith, tried taking it into his own hands to bring about that, that promise through his own works. And through that, by taking Hagar as his wife, they had Ishmael. But Paul says that is exactly like what happened at Sinai when he says the Sinai covenant, the mountain where, where God gave Moses the law. God had given them the promise that justification would come by faith, and then he gave them the law, not so that they would see it as a source of righteousness. Instead, it exposed the fact that they could not be self-righteous. They should instead humbly look to God and his promise through faith. And yet, like Abraham with Hagar, Israel tried to bring about God's promise, not through faith, but by using the law and taking the matters into their own hands, by their own strength, looking to the law for their righteousness. And just like Hagar, bearing Ishmael into slavery, so Israel was born into slavery as well. An inability to ever successfully become righteous by the law kept them 
enslaved to it and also condemned by it. As he said in chapter 3, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So we can see that first religion then, this kind of works-based religion is what Hagar represents. But who then are the children of Hagar? Paul's answer is shocking. The descendants of Hagar are not the Gentiles, as, as the Galatians have been being told, but it's rather those who are in the present city of Jerusalem, where the, where the heart of Judaism, where the law continued to be the hope for righteousness. And for that matter, Paul's saying it's the same for any legalist, for anyone who relies on self for righteousness. They then are descendants of Hagar. So that's religion number one. But then he gives a sharp contrast in, in the second religion, the one of faith. Okay, so whereas Ishmael came about by self-reliance, Hebrews 11 says Sarah conceived in her old age by faith in the promises of God. It was a supernatural miracle, one that could only come from God and that man could not bring about, unmerited. And so Paul says she represents Jerusalem that is above, the heavenly Jerusalem, the one, the city of God where all of God's true offspring, his true people will dwell. She is the new covenant, the one promised to Abraham, prophesied of by Jeremiah and Ezekiel, fulfilled in Jesus and then applied to the Christian church, that their salvation would come by faith in Jesus Christ. So John Piper explained that Sarah is the mother of all Christians, of people whose lives are not merely the product of human resources, but of God's supernatural work in their heart. Two mothers, two sons, two covenants, two offsprings, all to point out two religions. There's a lot of explanation about this allegory Paul's getting at, but I wanted to drive at that main final point before we move to the application. Paul is using this to reveal the, to the, the Judaizers, those who were telling the Galatians that they needed to become like Jews. They were saying, you who think that because you're a physical descendant of Abraham, that you will therefore be righteous, that is not the true descendant of Abraham. The true descendants of Abraham, his real offspring, are those who, like Abraham, have faith. And so here's a simple conclusion. If you seek righteousness under the law or by your works, it will enslave and condemn you. You are of Hagar, a, a descendant, an offspring of Hagar, and like her son Ishmael, have no inheritance to the promises of God. But if you would seek righteousness by faith in the promises of God, that he would justify the nations by faith in his son Jesus Christ, well, then you will be freed from sin. You will be enabled to actually live for God as the law was intended to instruct you. Adopted as sons of God and made heirs according to his promise. The question Paul poses from all this then, is whose offspring are you? Whose offspring are 
you? Are you a child of Hagar or of Sarah? Is your hope for righteousness before God in your own good deeds or your faith in the righteousness of Christ? Paul's hope is that in using this allegorical interpretation, he will expose to you the folly or inability of being delivered by or being a descendant of Hagar so that you will run to the hope and the joy and the freedom that there is by faith becoming a child of Sarah. And he gives four applications for those who are children of faith, four Christian sons and daughters of Sarah. And those are what we're going to close with. He begins with the first, number one, you are a child of promise, a child of promise. Let's read verses 28 to 31. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. These words would have been stunning to the Galatians. Those who by by birth are Gentiles and are being told that because they're Gentiles, they don't have access to the promises of God. And yet, Paul says, no, if you are of faith, you are a descendant of Abraham, the true offspring, and therefore a child of promise. And that's what's true of you this morning if you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, it is only because of God's grace saving you through the faith in his son, promised son, Jesus Christ. That is the whole point of verse 28. And really the entire point of the allegory, it's not because of your parents, like the Jews had thought before that, or certainly not because of your race or your ethnicity. It's not because of the country you were born in, or even because of how good and obedient you've been. Paul says it is because you were like Isaac, born by a promise, received by faith, and brought about by a miracle. See, the reality is each of us began more like sons of Ishmael, slaves to sin, slaves to unrighteousness and legalism in bondage to the flesh. The Bible makes clear that each of us were created in God's image to image him perfectly, to live perfect as he himself is perfect. But if we do any honest examination of our lives, we have utterly failed to do this. Each one of us has strayed and gone our own way. And yet God even gave us the law to teach us how we are to live and image him as he commands. And yet we could not do even that. It exposed our inability to do so. And it proved us slaves to the flesh, just like Ishmael. And God would have been perfectly just to leave us in that state and even judge us eternally in that state as slaves under sin's condemnation. But instead, 
He lovingly offered a promise, a promise that dates back all the way to when sin first entered the world, when Adam and Eve transgressed God's law, and he promised an offspring, one that would defeat the power of Satan, overcome the power of sin, an offspring that was re-promised, reaffirmed to Abraham, and that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, as we read a couple weeks ago, born under the law to give his life to ransom us from the family of Hagar, to adopt us by dying on the cross. He bears the penalty of every sin ever committed of those who would turn from their sin and trust in him. And in doing so, he then raises three days later and offers his perfect righteousness to any who would receive it by faith and therefore adopts him out of the family of Hagar and into the family of of Sarah, the family of God. Even if you have not done this yet today, would you see God's offering of free grace, of love to be received by repentance of sin and faith in his son and turn to him even today? Because this is how we are purchased out of slavery and adopted into his family and what the Bible calls new birth this new life, this new creation, a miracle that could not have happened by our merit or doing any more than Isaac could have been born by the flesh or natural ordering of Sarah. But I want to pause there and say, if you're a Christian, can you just rest there? Can you just sit there, stop and revel in this truth and live by it? hearing these words of God's unmerited love and favor towards you, not because of you or because of your goodness, but actually, frankly, in spite of you. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. You have been adopted by grace. And the Father in his love has chosen to know you. Would you now run and work with anxious toil as though you're trying to earn the love that you did not earn in the first place. As though you're trying to gain his favor that he did not give you because of your merit to begin with. Would you spurn the Father's love by making it more like a business transaction where you do and God rewards, nullifying the very grace of God which he offered to save you? Friends, we must not respond in the way that Abraham did at first to the promise God gave, thinking he must work to help God's promise along. No, we must trust it and receive it by faith, rejoicing that the Father would set his affection upon us and then live out that adoption, that freedom, by seeking to live according to his will, as revealed in his word, not to earn his favor, but in love for the one who has un. un Uh, comparably shown us his favor, undeservedly shown us his favor to live out our lives as those who are in the family of God. But then being part of the family of God, Paul says, means you will be treated as part of the family of God, treated as God himself is treated by the world, which is Paul's second implication or application. Expect persecution. Expect Persecution. Verse 29 says that Ishmael was persecuted, or excuse me, Ishmael persecuted Isaac. 
which likely refers to when Abraham, if you recall in Genesis 21, or uh, yeah, Genesis 21, Abraham is celebrating Isaac kind of coming of age early on, or like two or three years old. He's being weaned from his mother, and they throw a party for him. And then Sarah looks over and she sees Ishmael laughing, potentially in a very mocking way. And so Paul says, like Ishmael persecuting Isaac, so too will be the descendants of Ishmael persecuting the descendants of Isaac. He says this is to be the expectation for all Christians. Christians will be persecuted. Persecution for being a Christian is not an anomaly. It is an expectation. It is not an anomaly. It is an expectation. In Peter's first letter, he said we should not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us to test us as though something strange were happening to us. Jesus himself said, a servant is not greater than his master. If I suffered, so too will those who follow after me. That may mean martyrdom, but more often it means mockery or being looked down upon or being viewed as foolish, ignorant, unloving. But is that your experience? I think that's part of what Paul is getting at here is to kind of turn the question on to us. Is that your experience? Do others in your life know that you're a Christian? Tomorrow morning when you go to, the, when you go to work and your colleague asks you what you did this weekend, is it your thought, oh, this is an opportunity for me to tell them about my time with, with the saints worshiping the Lord in church? Or do you kind of shy away for fear that it might make you out to seem foolish? Or when you're with your family and you're talking about how you prioritize or organize your life, does the fact that you are a disciple of Christ and that affects the way you order your life come out in your conversation, even if doing so might elicit their ridicule? Do the Ishmaels in your life know that you love them and that because you love them, you they must know, you must tell them that apart from Christ, they are not only slaves, but they stand condemned in their sin. Friends, that is perhaps the chief complaint against Christianity. It's exclusivity. It offends when you tell others there is only one way. Especially if you tell them their way is wrong. That they are by nature slaves to their sin and in need of salvation outside of themselves. Even professing Christians in more liberal churches will mock and jeer and call unloving those who say they, those who they believe are intolerant. Who do not believe that God simply welcomes anyone who would try their best. But do you see how a theology, a doctrine oriented around God welcoming those who try their best is no different than what Paul is saying is the, the way of Ishmael. A self-worked, self-based, self-merited righteousness. A slavery that can, we can only be liberated from through the gospel. And yet we should not be surprised when Satan takes a message of liberation and finds a way to turn it into hate speech. But how unloving, even if it results in such ridicule, 
How unloving would it be to not share that gospel? Continue to stand firm on that gospel if you believe it's true and you believe their eternal state hinges on what they believe about it. Friends, we are saved by faith alone. But that faith always manifests itself in a life of faithfulness. And Paul says this life of faithfulness, this life that seeks righteousness, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, will result in persecution. So he asked, does your life elicit the persecution so evidently assumed here? And if not, why? It may very well be that God, that you're living faithfully, zealously for the Lord, and God has simply not seen fit to allow persecution into your life right now. But you should still ask yourself, is it because of that? Or because I temper down, I tone down my being Christian because I don't want to be persecuted for the sake of Christ? It was Martin Luther who said, if someone does not want to endure persecution from Ishmael, let him not claim that he is a Christian. But whereas we endure persecution of those who would oppose the gospel when we step out of the church, Paul actually gives a very different response to those who would oppose the gospel inside the church. Within the church, he says, implication number three, pursue Purity. Pursue purity. Verse 30. What does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. That was Sarah's response in Genesis 21 when she saw Ishmael laughing. She said, cast him out, cast out his mother and the slave, lest he because she did not want him to share in the inheritance. And that's where we need to focus in on. What was her concern? Primarily that, the inherit, that she was concerned with the threat to the inheritance. Friends, there is much in the Christian life we're called to tolerate. Much that we're called to endure. We're called to endure persecution, as we just considered, outside the walls of this church. Even within the church, Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are to Live humbly and bear with one another in love and seek eagerly to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. But there is one thing that should never be tolerated. Anything that would threaten the inheritance of God's people, that would threaten the purity of the gospel. And Paul makes the church responsible for guarding against false gospels by commanding the church to cast out, to remove false gospels and any who teach it from them. If you are a member of this church, do you realize it is your responsibility what is taught from this pulpit? You bear the responsibility and will give an account before God for what you permit and what you promote, even what you tolerate to be taught from this pulpit. And so we need to be thoughtful and prepared to deal with any false teaching that creeps onto this island. What, what false teaching is threatening the purity of the gospel here? Is it a works-based salvation, like what's happening in the city of Galatia? 
Is it a denial of Jesus as the only way to salvation? Is it a tolerance of unrepentant sin that the Bible says will not inherit salvation? Any such thing, we need to be ready to cast out from among us to maintain the purity of the truth of the gospel. And as a church, we must be prepared to both recognize and defend against false doctrine, forms of legalism or any other false religion. But then we must not only cast out the slaves among us, we also cast out the slave within us. Because we should also recognize that we each still are kind of at this inner war with the legalist within us. And the battle of already being redeemed and not yet fully sanctified. Tempted to turn back, as the Galatians were, to our way of sin and slavery. Our way of legalism. We should heed Paul's warning for ourselves that we, in the midst of our being prone to take matters into our own hands, should be weary of doing so. Wary of doing so. You know, one temptation I think we often fall into is our unwillingness to be transparent about our sin. A form, I think, of legalism. And do you ever hide your sin from other Christians? Do you ever pretend as though you're not struggling when you know you are? Are there any unconfessed sins in your life? And if there are, I'd ask you, why have you not confessed them? Is it because you think that by their not being revealed, perhaps that helps your position before God? As though if you could deceive others or even deceive God himself, it might not hinder your position or standing before God. Oh, friend, if, you, if that is you, can you see the legalist kind of rising up within you? And do you see yourself falling victim to Satan's trap? And Paul says to cast out such slavery. But then there's one final implication, one final application that fuels and drives all such living, and that is the joy set before them. Application number four, hope in your inheritance. Verse 31 presents a summary conclusion. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And if children of the free woman, then as he said in verse 30, they are heirs, according to the promise, heirs with the offspring of Sarah, heirs to the promised inheritance, which is God himself. Unhindered access to God in the Jerusalem that is above. This joyful bringing into the courts of God, sin gone, partition broken, and we have full access to see him as he is. That inheritance is what Paul is saying should be set before them. Christians are heirs. And God is as sure to deliver on his promise as he was to Sarah, as he was to Abraham, and as he has been to every promise of his word throughout the ages. And there is nothing that will in any way hinder God from fulfilling what he's promised. There is not a king or a president. There is not a foreign nation or an economic trial. There is no health scare. Nothing can in any way hinder God's ability to bring about every promise of his word.
Friends, how do you endure the persecution that Paul says you should expect? It is by remembering this promise. How do you, when you feel lonely after years of singleness, what will fuel your pursuit of purity and trust in God's good purposes for you and your life? It is remembering this promise. Or when you know that sharing the gospel with your friend or family may result in your relationship suffering, what will drive you to take the risk? It's remembering this promise. When the world around you tells you that God's word restricts you and denies you from the full experience of yourself, true freedom, what will strengthen your resolve to walk obediently before God? If you remember, Eve thought God's law restricted her. And so she took and ate. Sarah thought God's promise could not be fulfilled in her. So she took matters into her own hands. Both failed to trust the promise of God. That his law is good. And his promises are sure. And if we are going to persevere in faith, fighting against the allure of the world, of the flesh, and of the devil, we must constantly remind ourselves of this glorious promise, of this glorious inheritance, the Jerusalem that is above, where we will one day enter in and experience the matchless and unending joy of unhindered fellowship with our God, our Creator, and our Heavenly Father. And all of this, Paul says, will come by grace alone, through faith alone. To paraphrase John Stott, though we expect to be persecuted like Isaac, we also expect our father to treat us as Isaac was treated, with this glorious inheritance. We will become heirs like Isaac. So let's return then to Paul's main question. Whose offspring are you? Are you a child of the slave or a child of the free? By God's grace, John Newton came to an end in himself, discovering that all of this time he himself was the slave. His eyes were opened to the reality of his slavery, and by faith he repented of his sin and trusted in Christ alone. The slave trafficker set free from slavery. And yet many continue in that same self-deception he once knew. Hoping, thinking that their righteousness could be found within themselves. Whose child are you this morning? I pray that God's word would make clear the inability of self-righteousness or self-reliance and would compel you, would set you free to live in the freedom that can be found only by faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you, not by any righteousness of our own, but by the righteousness we've received through your perfect Son, Jesus Christ, who, whose righteousness we receive by faith alone. And we pray that we would know this hope, this righteousness, this inheritance, and that we would live in light of it, respond by living for the glory of your name, 
until that day when you finally bring us home into the fullness of that inheritance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.